This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Nita Prose, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you so much, Cheryl. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited about this because uh, there's so much that you, well, to talk about, of course. Firstly, congratulations on the book and uh, we'll talk about how successful it's been. And you and I both know how hard it is to launch a debut author. So, um, yeah, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. um, Yes. Since we've both worked in the publishing sphere, uh, we both are aware that, you know, if you can get on any list as a debut author, you consider yourself tremendously lucky. So, you know, Cheryl, I wake up every day pinching myself, basically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you wrote a good book. That's why. I mean, it doesn't, I, I mean, people often say to me, how do you do it? Well, it has to start with the content, right? Indeed, indeed. You know, yes, we all judge a book by its covers, but you know what we really judge it by when we read it, Mm. then, you know, you, you can't hide that. The story has to deliver. Um, Let me introduce you. Nita is an editor and writer who lives in Toronto, Canada. She's currently vice president and editorial director at Simon & Schuster in Toronto. Her debut novel, The Maid, is one of the most anticipated releases of 22, with the rights already sold in 29 territories. I mean, film rights have already been sold, haven't they? They have indeed. Yeah. Wow. Would you like me to tell you a little bit more? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Tell me. So uh, Universal Pictures uh, has the option for the film and Florence Pugh, the Academy Award nominee who was in Little Women and Midsummer and uh, Black Widow is set to star. She's also executive producer, as am I. And I honestly, I don't think we could come up with a better Molly, the protagonist of The Maid, than Florence Pugh. It's going to be phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. Congratulations. Well, um, The Maid is a charming, cosy mystery uh, about a hotel maid who discovers an infamous guest uh, dead in his room, very dead in his room, you would say, wouldn't you? Yeah. Indeed. He's very, very dead. Not even just a little bit. Yeah, no, we know that he's dead. Uh, really interesting, um, your observations too about that. I mean, I'm, I've been travelling at the moment, lucky enough to be travelling a little bit, and, you know, that's an observation I, I probably... I wasn't noticing people until I read your book in the service industry. I mean, it's not that I'm not grateful. I, I am, but it's a it's another uh, level. It's a, it's another depth. Yes, indeed. I think if we've learned anything over the past two years, it's um, to have tremendous gratitude for those people who keep the very fabric of our society working on a day-to-day basis. And I would count my protagonist as an example of that, although she's fictitious. Many of the, the workers that we count on every day to pack our groceries or ring in the tills, or as Molly does, you know, put the beds together and clean the rooms, our 
society will not function without them. And it's important to remember that and, um, you know, to treat people with dignity and respect for those important jobs that they do. Mm. And I really do think there's been a lot of industries uh, like, you know, the service industry in hotels, but also in care, in aged care and healthcare workers, you know, teachers who had to completely pivot that really have uh, in a way haven't been given the recognition that they deserve. A hundred percent. I could not agree more. And again, it's it's up to all of us to just uh, lead with a spirit of gratitude and understand that there are many of us who are less affected mm-hmm. by this pandemic and there are mm-hmm. others who are more affected. Mm-hmm. It's all on a spectrum. Mm-hmm. And so we have to be good and kind to each other and just remember who we count on to make the world work. Mm. Okay. So I want to talk about your stellar career. I mean, it's it's a big job being vice president and editorial director, but I want to go right back um, how, where it all started, how it all started. Did you, you know, because often people say, I mean, I was doing it last night to a friend of mine's teenage son. What do you think you're going to be when, he grow, when you grow up? He's 14 years old, <laughs> right? So if somebody had asked you that when you were 13 or 14, what would you have said? Well, I would have had no idea, but I did know one thing from a very early age, and that's that I'm only good at, and I was only good at one thing, telling stories and helping other people tell stories. Mm -hmm. It's just that, you know, when you open a brochure about careers when you're 13 years old, editor doesn't make any sense. I mean, so many of the jobs in publishing are sort of vague until you're actually in the industry and you understand, you know, precisely what everybody does. But, you know, it took me some time to find the right career. Um, And, you know, I went to school and then I did an internship at HarperCollins very early on in my career. And then I worked as a production editor, you know, so that's slaving on those pages, making sure that all the elements are there, that there are no mistakes, that it carries over from page to page and doesn't chop halfway through a sentence and so on. And um, slowly but surely, I I made my way through the industry. One of my favorite memories from that time, um, you know, was standing by the photocopier. And here I am, just a lowly, quiet, invisible intern, copying the pages of, you know, these, these incredible authors that, of course, lined my bookshelves at home. And I could look at the marginal notes between the editor and the author and see I could see the conversation going back and forth. Now, at this time, it was all written. Now, many editors do things electronically. And that was even more special because you could see their handwriting. Mm -hmm. And I fell in love with the mystique of that world, with that journey of taking a raw creative idea, a story, and bringing it to the page. Mm -hmm. And so... I'm sure some of our listeners would like to know exactly what an editor does. Well, I mean, it does vary depending on what kind of editor you are. I am a developmental substantive editor. So my job when I work on fiction and nonfiction, but I'm going to stick to fiction for now, is to make sure that the reader's experience of that particular narrative journey remains true to its nature from the very first word to the close. That is my job. So I work very closely with writers in order to, you know, see with them into their world and make that experience the best it can be. Hmm. You know, one of the really interesting parts of now being sort of on the other side as a writer 
is really just seeing how vulnerable and, you know, blind you are as a writer going into it. I, ta- I often talk about the maze, you know, a writer sits in front of this labyrinth and you have to enter this maze to find your narrative. And if you turn left, you know, uh, you don't realize that there's a dead end, but the editor is on a ladder outside of the maze and she's up top and she can yell down to you and say, oh, Nita, do not turn left. You're going to write yourself you're going to, you know, for six months, you're going to write yourself into a dead end and you're not going to come to the end of this story. So there really is a synergy and uh, an importance to that role of editor and writer that sometimes gets underplayed in how we, you know, think about books. We think of the the solo creator, the author who does everything from beginning to 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 end. But of course, there are so many people involved in the creation of a book. It really does take a village. Mm, It does. And I think it's the collaboration. Like you have many famous collaborations between editors and writers, some who writers who will only be edited by that editor, as you know. And also too, because I think it's just such a personal relationship as well, isn't it? It's got to be so truthful. It, it does. And as I say, one does feel vulnerable because mm-hmm. you really, um, you, you know, you have to go into some intimacies of the self and of your characters that, you know, you just can't compromise on. You can't go halfway. You have yeah. to go completely. And that is, by the way, as true of so-called commercial fiction as it is of literary fiction. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, um, editors do tend to get very close with their authors and, and same with the authors. Um, you really are going on a on a journey together through a, just an emotional world of discovery mm-hmm. through this creative process. Now, I have met many, many, many editors, and we call them in Australia publishers as well, over the Yes. And uh, not many of them have taken to writing their own book. Now, I'm, I, yeah, I'm a, yeah. a little different that way, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, talk to me about that idea and when it was that you thought you were game enough to write your own book. Well, you know, it wasn't like I woke up one morning and thought, yeah, now I'm going to be a writer. It didn't happen that way at all. So part of my past, you know, in as an editor has always involved ghostwriting, especially with my, my nonfiction. Um, sometimes I have celebrity authors who, who need a real collaborator who's doing a little bit more than editing, sometimes a lot more than editing. So I, I did have that in my background already. But of course, to turn your hand or your writerly ways from nonfiction to fiction, well, those are those are two different worlds. And it wasn't in my plan. Maybe in the back of my head, I thought maybe one day I'll write a novel. But but that's not how it happened for me. It happened like this. In um, 2019, I was at the London Book Fair. You know, there's a very big book fair. Many people attend, many authors attend, all kinds of publishers and publishing people. And I was staying at a, a London area hotel. And I left my hotel to go to a meeting with a publisher. And I came back. I opened the door to my room and I completely startled the roommate who was cleaning it. And I remember her stepping back into a shadowy corner. And, you know, the embarrassing part is that, you know, she's cleaning my room. She had my pants in her hand, which, of course, I had left in a tangled mess on my bed in my rush to make my meeting. And I looked at her and I just thought, you know, what an intimate an invisible job it is to be a roommate. She'd been cleaning my room for days. Mm. She knew so much about me, Cheryl, Mm. but I knew nothing about her. Mm. And that it's funny, you know, sometimes these little things, they just lodge in some strange part of your brain. And that's what happened. 
I didn't think about it for the next few days, but then I got on my plane, I, I headed home. And as I was sitting there on the plane, I started to hear Molly's voice in my head, Molly, the protagonist from The Maid. And it was clean and it was crisp and it was very, very precise. She had this way of speaking. And I grabbed a napkin under my drink because I didn't have any paper. And I started to write the prologue for The Maid in a single burst. And even then, I didn't realize that I had just begun my debut novel. But mm. I had just begun my debut novel. Mm. Mm. Now, so you had begun it. Did you? So the discipline of writing, for instance, you know, um, I know that you know how authors do that, but to apply that to yourself, so you've got a full-time job, you've got a big full-time job, and now you've decided to write a novel. Yeah, it was mm-hmm. a lot. I woke up, when I realised what was going on and that I was really going to give this my proper try, I woke up every day at 5 a.m. and uh, I went to the cave, which is what I call my 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 writing desk, And um, before my regular day started, I put in several hours of writing work. And I love those hours of the morning when the sun isn't up. It's a really liminal space and time. Like for me, my brain isn't quite fully active. I'm still in the land of dream a little bit. And there's a freedom to that. Before the phone starts to ring and the lights come on and, and the world starts to waken and the realities that come with it. And it was a fertile time for me. And I dedicated myself to that. And sometimes I wrote at night too, but that was always tricky because I devoted so much of my creative energy to my other authors during the day. And every weekend (laughs) I did the same thing. And um, yeah, I, you know, it's, it, it is a difficult thing to do that. You make all kinds of sacrifices. Um, But for me, there was also a great joy and a motivation in the very question of, can I do this? Can I actually make it through the maze from the beginning of this story to the end? And that kept me at my desk. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So now you think you've got a novel, right? Because I feel as though authors never really know when their novel finishes. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, unlike most people, yes, you know how to navigate the system. You've got that experience. But I would think that it's even more nerve-wracking than not knowing it because you're putting yourself on the line. You've got a reputation. You've got a job. 
and now you've got a manuscript. I mean, that just must be the scariest thing. <laughs> you know, I love this question from you, Cheryl, because so <laughs> many of people ask me that question, but in a different way. They think that I had this great advantage because I'm in the publishing world and that suddenly doors opened. Mm. Oh, my goodness. It's exactly the opposite. I was abjectly terrified because, yes, I know the agents. and Yes, I know who, who I can put my work in front of. But the consequences of doing so, you know, in my head, I had it all written out. I'm just going to do this. I will do it. But I know I'm going to be roundly injected, rejected, and that, you know, I'm going to have to face these people knowing that you well, know, my work didn't measure up. You know, I think that um, if it had gone the other way, right, I mean, how that would have been awkward. Absolutely. And uh, <laughs> that's the only version that I allowed into my head. And it haunted me. So it took some doing for yeah. me to put my big girl boots on and actually press send. Yeah, yeah, sure. yeah, I can imagine. So what path did you take? Because you're not published by the publisher you work for. No, no. no. I, um, you know, I found, I, I would have thought that would have been just too difficult to be yeah. published by my yeah, very I own agree. people. I agree. And <laughs> you know? awkward, awkward, yeah. So, you know, we, you know about sales conferences. So, yeah. you know, when you go to a sales conference in publishing, you're sitting in front of, you know, a room full of all, of the various people who are going to make this uh, publication happen. And you're selling them a book, basically. Mm -hmm. And I can't imagine being in that room, listening or being around when my colleagues are talking about my book. I mean, it's crazy. It's just too much to think about. <laughs> so what did you do? So did you approach, I mean, did you approach agents or did you pitch it yourself? How did you do it? I approached that? agents. Right. Yes, I definitely, um, you know, there was one agent more than any other that I had in mind for me because it was my for me my ideal fit mm. and that was Madeline Milburn who is now my agent again that took me so much courage honestly to to send my word to her but the reason why she was my ideal agent is because of a book by Gail Honeyman so Eleanor Oliphant is completely fine mm. so this was a real game changer in the publishing industry um this was a a first-person voice that was caustic, almost a cactus in real life. And yet somehow with that voice, we were wooed by the journey uh, of that remarkable story. And it, you know, was the, to me a really important work of uplet, you know, as they call it in the UK or feel-good fiction mm -hmm. in the US. And Madeline Milburn was the agent who understood what that book was before it even had a name, before the genre had even really begun. And, and before COVID, when people really started to want that. I mean, it's timely. You know, the maid is timely. Eleanor Elephant was timely. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Those are the ephemerals in publishing that, you know, yeah. you hope to be able to ride a certain wave and you never know if you will. Yeah. That's why it's important to have a really good book first and yeah. then hope for those ephemerals after. Yeah. So, you know, when Maddie um, read the work, she was enthusiastic about it. She really did understand the uplit qualities of this book, that this was not just a whodunit. It was yeah you know, a journey of the spirit where a character grows from the beginning to the end. And hopefully if I've done my job right, then so does the reader. Mm. 
So when that email came back from Madeline, were you tell me how nervous you were about reading the feedback? I mean, I just can't imagine what that would be like. I'd have to walk around the room five times before I. I did. That's exactly what I did. <laughs> um, I saw it come in on my phone, and yeah. you know, I uh, there the expletives started um, immediately, and mm-hmm. um, my partner was in the room. He's like, "What? What? What? What?" I'm like, "It's here." <laughs> And of course, I didn't have to explain because I've been waiting around for five days for this exact message. And I started to read it. And it was this impassioned, lovely love letter. And I literally fell to my knees. Literally. See, I think it's the only time in my life I've ever literally fallen to my knees because I knew what it meant. You know, I knew what that meant. It was that moment. It's not getting on the New York Times. It was not, you know, finishing the novel. No. When Maddie said, I'll take you on, I knew what it meant. Mm, mm. So when, you, when you're writing something, and, and I'm not a writer, so I don't know this, but there is, and people tell me about this in filmmaking, like actors will talk about this and directors and producers. At some point you realise you're onto something, you're onto something really good. Did you feel that at any point? Did you feel that I, I, think, I think this is special, I think there's something in it? It's a it's a funny question because for yeah. me it was like yes and no. Yes, yeah. I felt it and then yeah. I denied it vehemently with every yes. fiber of my being. <laughs> yes. Yes. And I don't think that's unusual for authors. No, I don't um, know of a certain kind. No, um I agree. Yeah. So it, part of part of an author's job is to not fall in love with your own work. It's mm. it's to really um to try to see it from a distance vantage point. And, you know, I did feel that impulse. Like, I think this character has, you know, resonance. I think Mm -hmm. she might mean something to people, Mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was really only after I got feedback that I felt more grounded that I might have actually delivered something, you know, worthy of some eyes. Mm -hmm. So um, when you were um, assigned your editor and when the process started for you, (laughs) tell me what that was like. So the the good news is I have three editors. So and this is not unusual in the publishing industry. It's very common for for writers to actually have more than one, especially with global publications. And obviously, because of my background, who edited me was extremely important to me. You you know, obviously, publishing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which publishing houses was equally important, but it was really about those relationships and who my guides would be and how we could speak to each other. Could we use a shorthand? Could we operate from the same goals to create this little cohesive team that would bring a manuscript into a finally finished product? And I love my editors. Oh, bless their hearts. They were so good to me. You know, it was so clear from the beginning that we shared the same goals, that we were all working in the same directions. And each of them sort of tackled, you know, different problems or or areas that needed work on in the manuscript. So, you know, Charlotte Brabin, who's my UK editor, was so good at what I call volume setting. So, you know, as an author, you don't always know, have I given too much? Have I given enough? And for me, something very important as a writer is to be right in the middle of that, to give enough that the reader can see, but not too much that they can't participate in the vision or in the experience or the emotional world. And she was very good at that sort of level setting. Mm. Um, You know, and when I tried things that were maybe a little too fancy in terms of plot, you know, Nicole Winstanley, who's my Canadian editor at Penguin, um, she pulled me back. And Hillary Tiemann, 
who's my U.S. editor, was so good at that narrative arc of moments that is going to come to something in the end. You know, have you seeded all the breadcrumbs? This one works. That one doesn't. The next one in line is over here, but it should come here. Mm -hmm. And so together, because we spoke the same language, we could really craft something and finally tune it um, to a point that I think has made all of us really happy. Mm. Well, it has made a lot of people happy, hasn't it? So, um, and we all know how difficult it is to launch a book and a first book, of course, and boy, did you launch that book. <laughs> did you <laughs> talk to me about that? I mean, what, what, at least how many, what, so it's New York Times bestseller, sold in yeah. 29 territories sold for I think we're up way past 30 now oh you're up to way past 30 okay (laughs) so okay as an editor how common is that uh I have to say it is highly unusual Mm. yeah it's it's not this is not a common track so you know I feel tremendously fortunate um and also proud of what I did and those two things you know, have to come together for this outcome um, to occur. Yeah, I agree totally. I think that that's that's what needs to happen. So the author's life (laughs) as a challenge never ends because you get all of this success, right, and this is wonderful success, but then you've got to deliver that again. Uh I mean, truly, what a hard job. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. You know, there is something very humbling about that. Um, And I think that there is, you know, there there are reasons why editors um, often have their feet very much on the ground. And Mm -hmm. that is why. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, you create a readership, but it really does want to be fed. Mm -hmm. Um, At the moment, I'm getting so many messages asking for the obvious, which is more Molly, more Molly, more. I want more. I want more. I want more. Well, my job was to do exactly that. It was Mm. to leave the reader wanting more. Mm. Now I have to answer the question, will there be more or won't there be more? And, you know, what I say about that is I will only deliver more of Molly if I can deliver something that is at the level of the maid and Mm. that won't be lesser than, Um, Mm. because then I'm doing a disservice to both the character and more important to me, to the reader. Mm. So uh, what I can promise, I'll do something. Yeah, you might be different. It might not be more. I don't know. (laughs) So you haven't started writing. (laughs) I have many ideas percolating, things that I've been working on and thinking about. So it's really about, you know, getting past this phase of supporting the publications and finding, you know, a new amount of time to devote to those early hours. So tell me, what would you call yourself now, an editor or an author? Oh, I, I am both. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a storyteller, you know, and mm. I think if when I think of myself that way, it feels like the appropriate term because I, I see the two halves of what I do as fundamentally the very same thing. Mm. Nita Prose, thank you so much for your time and congratulations again. Thank you so much, Cheryl. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. 
or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.